Bet365 sponsors The View From The Lane and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. The new season has begun and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name's Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Charlie, you're back from your holiday, how was it? It was very nice, thank you. I was down in uh, down in Devon. Um, yeah, very nice to get out of London um, and yeah, quite relaxing, but nice to be back as well. Excellent. Well, today's obviously a big, big week in Spurs world because this morning is the release of the first three episodes of the Amazon documentary about Tottenham's season last year. We are going to touch on that, but first we're going to talk about a few other things that have happened to Spurs in the last few days. The big the big news of which is the signing of Matt Doherty from Wolves, which is a really big deal, I think, because it's you know obviously been a problem position, hasn't it, Charlie? Uh, right back, and they've been looking for like an experience upgrade on Serge Aurier, and they seem to have found the best person for the job. Yeah, I think it's a really smart signing. Matt London, who's one of our, our followers, um, and listens to the pod he he messaged us i think in april su- suggesting that matt doherty would be a really good signing um and i responded saying at the time i, I can't see it happening but agree would be a great signing and the reason i thought that was just because i thought to, to prize away someone like that from a direct rival would be would be really difficult so to have done that i think is uh is, is impressive and you know i, I he he his age, he's 28, so maybe not someone necessarily for the long term, but you could get a, at least a good few years out of him and, uh, yeah, plugs a hole and continues the theme with Hoiberg of what feel like very common sense signings. James, are you excited about it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, if you look at it in the last two years or last three years, probably since since Walker left, really, that, that has been a problem position. I mean, which isn't to say that, that Trippier and Aurier have been like entirely dreadful the whole time, but... I mean, not, not knowing what you're going to get is almost worse than, than knowing you're going to get sort of six and a half, seven out of ten, um, which is what you get out of Ben Davis, I suppose. So I think to have a bit more certainty in that position would be really useful. I mean, in, in that time frame, in that two, three year period, Doherty has been one of the best two or three right backs in the Premier League. I mean, I, I tweeted about this yesterday. Obviously, he plays or has played as a, as a right wing back mostly for Wolves. Uh but I think I think that will translate quite nicely with the system that Mourinho played last season, which was, uh, as we know, giving the right back a bit more freedom to get forward and getting the left back, which at the moment we will assume will be Davis again, for the most part. The kind of responsibility is kind of tuck in with the centre backs. So uh, yeah, I think it'll fit in well. I think it's a good signing for the, for the fee, which I think we think is around sort of fourteen, fifteen million pounds. If he can continue at the same sort of level as he's been playing with Wolves for the next two or three years, then that's going to prove to be fantastic value for money. So yeah, I think it's a sensible signing. 
I said, I think I tweeted yesterday that it was a great signing and someone said that I was getting a bit carried away. But I, I mean, I do think it is a, a great signing. It's a really good signing for Spurs. Um, it seems quite low risk to me. So yeah, I think I think that's an encouraging one. Yeah, I completely agree. He's been really, really good for Wolves well, for a long time. But certainly in the last two years since they've been in the Premier League, I think he's got, what, 15 Premier League goals and 15 assists across the last two seasons. And that, which means that only Trent Alexander-Arnold of all the Premier League fullbacks has been, well, certainly of all the Premier League right-backs, has been more productive than him. And like James says, it's you know the big test is going to be whether if he can, if he is playing in that kind of Aurier role, as in pushed really far forward as Spurs is right back in that sort of lopsided system, whether or not he can he can be as productive for Spurs as he was for Wolves. But Charlie, there's no. It seems like Spurs are going to get a little, hopefully more. A little bit more kind of efficiency going forward and more goals and probably better delivery while also you'd think being slightly more secure at the back. It will be interesting because Aurier, I know a lot of fans won't like this, but he has become, you know, an important part of how Spurs attack. Uh, you know, as you say, he plays really advanced on the right. And so there will be a lot of emphasis on Doherty to, uh, you know, fill that void and, and better it. And, 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 you know, as you say, the numbers point to the fact that he will be able to. And then defensively, yeah, you'd hope there would be there would be fewer errors. It'll be interesting though because Aurier, I've said this before. I think he has been harshly criticised, and often you, you get a better sense of a player when he's not there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how how much of an upgrade Doherty is. I, I think he will be, and I, and I agree with you guys. I think he is a really good signing. Right now, we're offering listeners to this show the opportunity to try out the Athletic for free. You can enjoy all of our writing on Spurs including my recent interview with Eric Dyer, where I went to his house last week. We had a really good conversation about Tottenham and his life away from the game. We're going to talk about it on the show in a few minutes. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to sign up for a 30-day free trial. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. If readers are interested in in Doherty's career and how he got to this point, we ran a really good piece a few weeks ago by Tim Spears, our Wolves correspondent, looking at Doherty's whole career and how he will signed him 10 years ago from Bohemians in Ireland for £75,000 back when Mick McCarthy was manager. And it charts his time at the club going out on loan to Hibs and Berry. And initially he was talented, but slightly out of shape. And then it was really only back in League One, I think under Kenny Jacket, that he started to, started to really deliver on his potential. Uh, I think he got player of the season in 2015-16 playing at left back. And then, of course, when Nuno arrived three years ago, that really kind of sparked another big improvement. And it's just a really interesting story of a player who's, you know, spent an awful lot of time at Wolves. And in a sense, his, his route into playing for the Premier League has been slightly unconventional, coming from Ireland and then doing the hard yards out in, in the Championship in League One and on loan. But... Um, he, so he, he really arrives at Spurs with an awful lot of experience behind him. One thing I've been wondering about Doherty, and I'd be interested in hearing your, your thoughts on this, guys, is that he's got three years left, or he had three years left in his contract at Wolves. He's been a first-choice player there for years. Wolves are selling him to a direct rival for, what, sort of 14, 15 million pounds. That suggests to me that they're not devastated to see him go. Like, I, I assumed that Wolves would price him out of a move if Tottenham wanted to come in for him. But the fact is, they've been more willing to let him go than I expected they would be. Have you got any any theories as to why that might be? Well, I wonder how much of it... And, and that was why when, you know, going back to 
to my response to that tweet, I said I couldn't see it for, for those reasons because I thought they would price him out and I just couldn't see why they'd sell to direct rival. Um, I mean, you do wonder how much the, the Ainsley Maitland-Niles um, kind of possibility and potential U-turn will, will upset Wolves because it felt like they were willing to let him go because they had a replacement lined up. But now it might be that Arsenal don't want to sell him or don't want to sell him at the kind of price that Wolves want. So I don't know how much... That was a factor. You'd think they would, if, if that was a big factor, they would have been pretty far down the line before uh, allowing Doherty to go. But I think there will be quite a lot of that this summer. Of There are so many clubs where you feel like there are a lot of moving parts and they can't really move on until someone else has gone. Uh, and then the fact that the window doesn't close until a month after the season starts. So I don't know if that was, I don't know if that was a big factor um, or... You know, if it was one of those where he'd, he'd been there a long time and it was kind of had an understanding that because he'd been so loyal or, he, you know, whatever, that they, would, they wouldn't stand in his way if there was a move he really wanted to make. But I, I agree with you. It, it is a strange one. You know, it, it being Wolves, you do wonder whether they've got like some kid in the Portuguese league who they're going to sign for £5 million who's going to prove to be way better. Um, you can just never tell with them, can you? So, but yeah, you're right. It, it did seem a bit of a strange one. And when Spurs were kind of linked with Mounier before his contract ran out, but before the restart, and we were talking about that, and you could see like why he was a perfect fit. And it kind of feels like Doherty might just be like the next one down that list, if you know what I mean. Like he's an attack-minded right back who is also over six foot, which we know Jose Mourinho is really keen on. Um, so yeah, I know what you mean. It kind of almost feels too good to be true. But but I, I just think that's just the way it works at Wolves, isn't it? They, they you know... Their, their scouting is good. They obviously got really good connections of agents and whatnot. Uh, and I just wouldn't be at all surprised if they they had someone else lined up who they're going to bring in, and we're going to wish we signed instead. I guess his age as well does yeah does mean that it's not monumental money, but it's still pretty good money for a player that you'd imagine wouldn't have a huge amount of sell on value. So and, and given the financial realities, they might have just thought you know th- this might not have been you probably couldn't have got him at that price pre-COVID but it might be that you're thinking well he's 28 that's a pretty decent chunk of money we're getting so reluctant that is a good point actually that the the post-COVID transfer market I suppose like 15 million pounds may actually be sort of you know 25 million pounds in 2019's money you you know what I mean so that is a factor as well I guess yeah completely it's also worth saying that um, Doherty left his old agent to sign with George Mendes who did the deal to Tottenham and Mendes is obviously both you know, has represented Mourinho in the past and is clearly incredibly influential at Wolves. So, you know, this wouldn't have happened. This wouldn't have happened without the sort of blessing of Wolves, if you know what I mean. And it's also worth worth pointing out that in his in Doherty's interview on the on the Spurs website after he signed, he did say that he's able to both get in the box and score in one end, but defend the back post at the other end, which is exactly what Mourinho wants from his fullbacks. He wants them to be able to to contribute in both boxes, and I think that's why he's going to be a much more natural fit. The Spurs. Elsewhere on the Athletic, there's an interview with Eric Dyer, just gone up this morning, which I did last week. Uh, went around his house in London to talk to him. He's a really, really, really nice guy. Uh, spoke a lot about his interests away from football, and also he spoke very positively about Spurs prospects for this year coming up. Um, he sees it as a as a new start and a new era. New start is his words. New era is my words. Given that he's got his new contract now, just signed at the end of last season, he's settled at centre-back, which is something he's been asking both Pochettino and Mourinho about for more than a year. Uh, He seemed pretty confident. He seemed happy with Mourinho and impressed with Mourinho's mentality and his managerial techniques so far. 
Uh, and I got quite a positive feeling, to be honest, from him about how Spurs are going to shape up this year. How did you find him to interview Jack? Was he? I mean, he it read like he was very open and kind of happy to talk on a range of topics. Yeah, really open, really open and honest, to be honest. Like some, as you know, like with footballers, you never really know what they're going to be like when you're interviewing them until you actually get there. But he was, he was very happy to talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, he, he's very good. He's a very good talker. Uh, he spoke about even things like going into detail about how Mourinho, what Mourinho is like with the players, or why he thought Mourinho was right to be so critical of the players after Sheffield United, or what he thinks has been wrong with the mentality at Tottenham in the past. That sort of topic, I thought he he spoke really well on in a way that it might have been easier for you know it's always easier for players to give the kind of bland like mixed zone style answer. So in that sense, yeah, I thought he did talk really well. We did a sort of profile on him a couple of months ago, and he definitely comes across in that way and I think like you say mix mix zone such a weird environment isn't it to to talk to players you know they for, for those who don't know I mean that's when the, the players walk through this area where they have uh kind of hordes of waiting journalists sticking microphones in their face uh trying to talk to them straight after games and you know one or two tend to stop and and, and Dyer often does you know he, he's really good at that but it's, it's it's a weird environment isn't it you know you're you've just finished a game and you kind of have this throng of people with phones and dictaphones in your face and you've got to try and gather your thoughts and, you know, answer questions for, for a few minutes. Um, so, yeah, I imagine, you know, having a, having a proper sit down is, is obviously like a, a far better uh, environment, for both for you and for the players. You know, it's just a lot more comfortable and natural, I guess. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I think that, I think I'm, sometimes I'm not even, I'm not fully sold on the value of, those shorter interviews just because the players a lot of the time like you can tell the players hearts aren't really in it like you know they've just played a game they want to get home and see their families they don't particularly want to do like three minutes of quite basic questions so I do feel like you know you're always going to get better answers in a kind of in a more like relaxed interview environment rather than that sort of quite pressurized post-match interview environment but I suppose, on the other hand, like fans will often want to hear players' explanations about the game afterwards if they haven't won or whatever. So I would want the players to do a little bit of media stuff after the games. I remember actually, it sticks in my mind after that Brighton three 0 game earlier in, uh, sorry, last season uh, in October, which was probably the nadir in lots of ways for that Pochettino era. And Dyer was one of the players who who stopped after the game, and he, and he spoke well, and you you felt for him, you felt for the whole team that day. It, it did. Um, it did feel like something had really broken um and and that you know that's tough to to have to answer questions and, and like you say Jack, kind of explain what went wrong and, and how you you know how you do that in only a few minutes um you know pithily is 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 not an easy thing to do and i do get the impression that dyer is now one of one of the real leaders and one of the most popular members of the dressing room because he's definitely he spoke about how he was he's obviously he was very very close to vatongan and dembele when they were there, who and that kind of sort of group of foreign players, which also includes Alderweireld and did include Ericsson. And yet we also know that he, he was telling me about how he's learned Spanish and he he's talking about his holidays in Ibiza and Sardinia with the Spanish-speaking contingent. So that's Lamella, La Celso, Foy, Sanchez, Gatsaniga. And he's he's clearly very close with those guys as well. And he's he's learned Spanish so he can talk to them. And he was talking about how he, he used to tell Vertonghen that he wished that Vertonghen and Lacelso could speak the same language because he thought they'd get on really well together. But Dyer, I think, effectively had to kind of interpret between the two. And so he seems to be this kind of 
multilingual glue between various different groups of the Spurs players. And of course, he's very close to the English players as well, as in Winks, Delhi, and Kane and Davis. So um, there can't be many other players at Spurs who are like, you know, have a foot in every camp, as it were. Uh, and it does make you think that he would be, you know, if in Hugo Lloris has got two years left in his contract. And if he were to go in two years' time, I think the presumption is that Harry Kane would become captain. And you can totally see why that would be. But there is part of me that thinks, yeah, you know what, Dyer would be really good, really good Tottenham captain as well. Definitely. When I was doing that kind of profile on him, whenever it was a few months ago, I, I was reminded of the fact that when um, the England captaincy was kind of up for grabs quite early on in Southgate's era, Dyer was talked about as like a genuine contender, you know, as someone who was had completely the respect of the dressing room, um, you know, got on with everyone, was very smart, very intelligent, a leader on the pitch. Uh, so he definitely has those credentials. Um, so, it, it, I mean, I, I feel like he will end up as a captain at, at, at some stage in his career. He he just feels like he has that natural leadership and, you know, he is someone who stands up for himself and for his teammates. So, yeah, it'd be, it'd be an interesting one to see that when, when the Tottenham captaincy uh, is re- is renewed, as it were. Would you like to see that, James? Uh, yeah, I mean, you say he'd be a contender. You do wonder whether, like, you know, the captaincy may, may be something that means more to Harry Kane than it does to Eric Dyer, if you see what I mean. So therefore, maybe something they give him um, to kind of keep him sweet. But, uh, you know, a manager like Mourinho, I think, and this is probably a bit of a cliche, but I think he wants captains all over the pitch, right? And I and I don't, he'll probably be sort of encouraging him to show those qualities more, regardless of whether he's got the armband on, I think. Yeah, completely. And like, so for example, my impression with England is that while... While Kane is the captain, I think a lot of the on-pitch, on and off-pitch leadership and talking is done by Jordan Henderson, who's a kind of almost like the sort of, I don't want to say like unofficial captain, but I think Henderson does a lot of the leadership role there as well. And you can kind of envisage such a thing happening at Tottenham where if Kane steps into the captaincy post Lloris, that Dyer can, you know, Dyer will still have a hugely important leadership role to play and one that I think he's very, very well suited to. Wouldn't it be great if every clothing store you shopped at had only your size, the styles you like, and everything at the price you want? Well, Stitch Fix is a company focused on doing just that. It's an online personal styling company that makes getting the clothes you love simple. It's a completely different way to shop, and it's all about you. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk lane to set up your profile and they'll deliver great looks personalised just for you. You won't need to leave the house. You'll pay a £10 styling fee for each fix, which is credited towards anything you keep. Schedule at any time with no subscription. Deliveries and returns are completely free and easy, so you can always send back items that aren't right for you. Get started with Stitch Fix today by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash lane right now. And make sure you use our show name to support our podcast. That's stitchfix.co.uk forward slash lane. The big news in Spurs World this week is the launch of the first three episodes of the Amazon documentary All or Nothing, which has just gone out this morning. The three of us were lucky enough to see the first three episodes last week when they were released to the media. Um, I'm sure we've all got lots of thoughts about it. Uh, we're all James, in it, by the way. We're all... Are you in it? Is Charlie in yeah, it? Yeah, I sent you that picture on WhatsApp. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Where's that, Charlie? That is an indication. Charlie is in a press conference. So do explain I mean, to the listener. Concealed. Yeah, yeah we, we all appear in the documentary. Wow. JPB is in a couple of press conferences. Um, you don't ask a question, do you? But you're kind of in the background a couple of yeah, times. Yeah, so there's one where I'm like, so at the Mourinho unveiling, I'm like sat in the middle of the busy press room. And there's another one where I don't, it must be like a different press conference where the camera pans to me and I'm sat with Alistair Gold from Football London and uh, Dan Kilpatrick from the Evening Standard, um, re- friend of the show. Uh, and I just pull like a ridiculous face. Uh, <laughs> you know what we were saying about you becoming a meme? I mean, it definitely feels like yeah, a possibility. Yeah, God, can't wait. James, what, what's, your main, what's your main take home? My first observation is that and I don't want to get you started on which films I haven't haven't seen again, Jack, because I know you'll get upset. But I, I've seen a few films with Tom Hardy in, and this isn't this isn't a Bane joke. But his voice sounds totally different, right? I just mm. don't. That's not yeah. how I hear his voice in films. And I know it like, sounds like know, a real documentary voice. Yeah, it, it and I know what affecting. acting is. I know that like you know he puts on different voices for different films when he's playing you know lunatics in prison or whatever. But. I, it just sound. It didn't sound like Tom Hardy. I would have taken. It would have taken me months to, to guess yeah. who that was. It's weird. I would never have guessed it was Tom Hardy had I not also, been why, told. Is Tom Hardy a football fan? He's a, he's a Spurs fan, isn't he? Is he? I think so. I thought that. Um, what's the name of the the lunatic he played in the the guy in prison he plays in that film? What um, Bronson? Uh, Bronson. Yeah, he he was a Spurs fan. I think right. I think or is if he's still wow. alive. I think that could be wrong. I mean, uh, yeah, so we're not going to bother checking that, but I think that's right. Now you say that you're absolutely right. Like it hadn't occurred to me uh, that that it would have been Tom Hardy. The best example of Tom Hardy doing a good a good voice is in The Drop, which was James Gandolfini's last film. Hardy plays like Gandolfini's kind of protege criminal and does this kind of really hands it up with this very Brooklyn accent. Um, <laughs> it's worth watching. Uh, Charlie, what was your main sort of take home? I feel a bit Emperor's New Clothes with it. I, 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 I was quite disappointed with with the documentary. I, f- I mean, I know obviously I went in with my eyes open, knowing that, you know, ha- based on the Man City one, um, you know, any documentary in inverted commas where the subject matter uh, essentially has sign off is never going to be that revealing, or you know, it's not exactly going to be scandalous in any sort of way. But I just. I just felt a bit deflated when halfway through the first episode, you've got this, you've got Pochettino being sacked, you know, you've got this enormous story and it's barely covered really. I mean, not in any meaningful insidery way. And at that point I just felt, okay, it's going to be, this is the kind of show it's going to be, you know, it's, it's not, this is not having any pretense of really, being a documentary as such it's just a kind of puff piece maybe that's a bit harsh but you know and they give us some nuggets and you know and it's, it's very watchable and it's very entertaining but i think I, I tweeted it after i watched watched them last week i think it just depends what your expectations are if, if you're kind of going in thinking that it's going to be hugely revelatory i think you'll be disappointed but if you just want some quite nice, quite entertaining clips, um, then it's perfectly enjoyable. As a fan watching it, I quite enjoyed it. And as you say, Charlie, there are nice little sort of nuggets in there that show, like, you know, some some elements of like Mourinho's personality that perhaps you wouldn't have seen. I mean, Daniel Levy, from the from what you see in this documentary, 
is like a totally different person to what I expect or what I expected. And I know, you know, you could argue that this may be how they've tried to put him across in this or how he's tried to put himself across knowing he's being filmed. But like, he seems way more of a people pleaser than I, than I kind of expected him to be. Like I, I had visions of him being just like, you know, within like the, the work, his office environment, he would be like completely serious, just completely business-minded. And like, you know, the bottom line was all that was going to matter. Um, and he wouldn't have so much time, you know. I mean, the first the first bit you see of him, like like when Pochettino turns up at the, at the NFL game right at the start, and the, the way he kind of welcomes him, I, it seems so like, it's, it was kind of like almost childlike enthusiasm to see someone. It, it's kind of like... I don't know. There's a, it's almost like a sort of David Brent-like quality to him that it, in the elements of the office where you, you're kind of rooting for David Brent because he seems like quite a nice guy rather than like a sort of cringeworthy loser. <laughs> what, with Mourinho's fin sheet. <laughs> well, but yeah, I mean the bit. Where, that's a great comparison. Well, the bit where, um, and I tweeted about this this morning, but the bit where Mourinho's first full training session, he, he goes into the office and he kind of, you know. To, has a deep breath and sort of sits back in his chair and he's on his phone and then Levy Levy comes in like knocks on the door sticks his head around the door uh, and, and sort of says everything alright good training session and it just seems like uh, it's just not what you expect and I do wonder whether Mourinho is used to like ha- having a chairman or an owner or a president like kind of sticking his head around the door every other five minutes sort of checking he's doing okay I mean if, yeah, that, that, was is, if, if that is a genuine reflection of what he's like I think that's really good but yeah you've kind of got to be a little bit cynical about that haven't you for me the most interesting thing is the contrast between the enthusiasm for it between Pochettino and Mourinho <laughs> Dave Heitner wrote a good piece about this in the Guardian the other day which is worth reading confirming that Pochettino didn't really want this to happen he wasn't comfortable with it and you can tell that because Clearly, the camera. There are no cameras in any of Pochettino's early meetings. Pochettino does one kind of bit to camera. When, when Pochettino is sacked, there is obviously no footage of those meetings, um, and he's just like a, it feels like a prologue, basically those first twenty-two minutes. And I know that like film proper filming in earnest didn't really start until a bit into the season, so maybe the timelines didn't quite match up. But then Mourinho is obviously delighted to have this to have this documentary. He's he's like everything is on the table. Like all these very in- intimate meetings, these one on one meetings he has with Delhi and Dyer and Kane, the cameras are there for that. He he's happy to have the cameras on his little discussions with Levy, where he explains things to Levy. He's very happy. Like we know this from doing press conferences with Mourinho, where his vanity means that he's he's delighted to explain things to you just to show how smart he is. And like the same effect as a play here where he's he's very he's basically very happy to have cameras on everything that he does just so that he can explain his methods and everything and let a world in you know let the world into his genius management um which does make for great tv like whatever you think about Mourinho it is really interesting seeing him operate and it is um you know you I certainly feel like so far I've come away with a sort of improved yeah, like I feel more engaged in the whole like Mourinho process. What I would say about that is that we've seen we, we've seen up to that Chelsea game, which I think you would sort of broadly say is the point that it's sort of started to turn a little bit from Mourinho. That was a massive game that they lost, having played quite badly. So you do wonder if in the next three episodes he'll be quite so um, quite so open and engaging, um, because obviously what we've seen is basically the kind of honeymoon period of those first few games where you know they, they were winning even if they weren't playing particularly fantastically. So it, I guess it could be different in those next in those next three episodes. But with Poch as well, I don't know. Like, yes, 
that it, oh, clearly he didn't want to do it and Mourinho is, is a great performer but I also wonder if there's a degree to which there's not that much it, it makes far more sense for Tottenham for it all to be about Mourinho than it does for them to be about Pochettino given you know commercially Pochettino's left the club there's not that much benefit to them building up his profile or showing his methods like I, I just can't believe that in you know Pochettino was the manager for a third of the season and yeah like you say you know it didn't maybe start properly to the bit into the season but he lasts half an episode of a nine part series so he's basically in an 18th of the series and I just can't believe he didn't do or say anything interesting to, to merit you know a bit more footage or that there that there wasn't anything interesting in the in the complete disintegration of that relationship with the players like that Brighton game that I mentioned that I think and again I'm 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 sure I'm coming at it from too close almost where you know our job for the last year has been to be across everything that's going on in Spurs but that felt like a pretty seminal moment and that doesn't get a mention um and then you know like that Everton game at Goodison Park where the, there was the Son Andre Gomez incident that isn't mentioned and I, I don't know it, it just feels like it's um it, it's presenting it as kind of like the definitive story of the season and like we've opened our doors and nothing's off limits and that just very clearly isn't the case and that's fine but it, yeah I just feel like journalistically anyway there's a lot uh that, that i would have liked to seen explored that isn't well, well if it was a feature film and you were splitting splitting it into three acts and you've we've got these three lots of three episodes so you can kind of make that division you would say the, the first act of the film would be up to the point that pochettino gets sacked right so it's kind of like high expectations it's all going badly you know that you've got your, your buy and defeat and um, losing at Brighton, as you say, Charlie, and the Son thing as well. And it's all a bit of a nightmare. So you'd kind of... And that is about one third of a season. So you kind of think, well, the first three episodes could be that bit. Then the middle bit is going to kind of be Mourinho comes in, the changes he makes, you know, getting to understand the way this guy works. And then you kind of think that's going to start with this honeymoon period that we talked about. And then you have like the rougher spell and it all started sort of starting to turn sour as the season wore on and all the injuries and whatever. And then you get up to the end of the second act would be like lockdown. And then the third act would be um, the lockdown period, how weird and unusual and, and alien that is. And then the kind of redemption at the end of the season of that post-lockdown form where the team played well and, you know, heroically draw at Crystal Palace and finish sixth and it's all incredible. That kind of feels like a really neat split of the season that if you're splitting this thing into three parts would work really nicely. And that, that just makes me wonder whether there just, as you say, there just wasn't enough footage from that first kind of three months of the season to to pad that out. But um, to me, that kind of feels like the logical way of doing it anyway. Yeah, I mean, as a filmmaker, I think it'd be kind of extraordinary to to be told like, right, so you're going to have the, the sacking of this beloved figure who's you know the, the most successful manager in their modern history he goes you'd be like right okay that's an amazing story but like, yeah no but you can't really cover that that's not really going to be a part of the story i mean that that to me would seem as a filmmaker like totally crazy um i mean i, I get and, and without wanting to be too critical because like I, I completely accept um I, and you know ha having having done like big magazine features on players and clubs and stuff in the past like i know the difficulty sometimes you have where you have to fill gaps when people won't talk about things or whatever um, but I, like I, it's kind of quite frustrating to see the, the Pochettino thing is really really glossed over I mean like you go from the point you get, you get the Sheffield United game and they draw and then the next thing that happens is Pochettino is gone 
And like, we all know that like in that 10, there was 10 days between that game and him going. And there must've been so many kind of conversations and it must've been like a real, like a, a really emotionally fraught time for Levy because he talked so much about how close he was with Pochettino and how, you know, they talked every day and they went on holiday together. And it must have been like a really difficult time for him, whatever you think of him. And that is just not even, it's not even alluded to. I just find that quite strange. I, I, you know, that, that, that 10 days is like a sort of definitive period in the history of the club. And it's just like, just completely skipped. But ditto like the whole period from it all falling apart, you know, the, that period of the season. And instead what you get, I think, you know, the, rather than the Brighton game, you have uh, an NFL game, which narratively speaking, I mean, what is that? That, 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 that? I mean, and, and of course, you know, fine. It's a kind of corporate video that, that, you know, that's to me what, what this is. And, but like if, for that to be more interesting uh, is kind of extraordinary. I think they didn't film at the Brighton game. Yeah. I think if yeah, they that's, had that's clearly what it is, isn't it? I yeah. Mean, yeah. And again, uh, you can, you've kind of got to be aware of the practicalities and the difficulties you have as a filmmaker, particularly when you're trying to get cameras into a Premier League game. And we all know how kind of stringent those things are. So all of this we say is kind of with that in mind. We're just kind of talking about like frustrations, I guess, as kind of viewers um, with the things that are missing rather than sort of criticisms of the filmmakers, if you see what I mean. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener to our show, you will get two extra free beers. So that's ten free beers. Beer52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands, and they deliver your beers straight to your front door. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget right now, listeners get two extra free beers. One thing I did like, those one-on-one meetings, I think, are incredible. Particularly the one, I think my favourite is probably the one with Kane. Just because what's, I mean, it's obviously, it's obvious what Mourinho's trying to do, which is to kind of inflate Kane's ego and rub him up the right way and tell him that he can make him a superstar. And, and he starts talking to Kane about how he's going to make him a big name. But within about a sentence, he's talking about how he's a big name. Like he starts, he says, the world looks to English football with incredible respect, but they still think the movie stars of football belong to other places. We have to build your status in that direction. My profile, I am a little bit like that as a coach. The reality is that my dimension is universal. And by being with me, I can help you. It's just so good. It's just like the classic, classic, classic Mourinho. I thought that bit was amazing. And and Kane completely buys it because Kane says, yeah, yeah, I want to be like Ronaldo and Messi. Yeah, that was quite Brent to Tim being like, you could be in the hot seat in a few years. Time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I thought Kane's body language in that bit was quite interesting. This this could just be me. But um, the, the way he's kind of sat at the start, he seems so... He seems kind of quite defensive. He doesn't look re- relaxed at all at the start of that conversation. And it almost to me seems like 
it, he's expecting some kind of confrontation there. I don't, I don't know why, but he, he can't, you know, you're right. He does relax as the conversation goes on. And obviously we have the fantastically awkward moment at the end where, and this again, it's, it's quite Brentish, uh, where Kane goes for kind of the, the handshake slash hand slap and Mourinho goes straight in for the fist pump, way pre-COVID as well. Um, oh, it's just funny. But uh, yeah, to me, that meeting seemed hard. It was like Kane was really sort of, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I suppose emotion, he was close to Pochettino and emotions were probably still raw at that stage. But yeah, like the way he was like sat, like sort of straight back, like completely straight faced. He didn't look relaxed at all. Also, I wonder how conscious the players were in those situations of the fact that there were cameras there. You know, they, this well, is maybe. like one of the, bi- the one of the biggest work meetings of their life, like their first one-on-one with the new boss. And they're doing it on camera. You must, you know, you can, pl- and, and apparently the cameras are not, are not very intrusive in Mourinho's office, but you must still be thinking, wow, like really, is this going to go out to the whole world? Kane's interesting throughout. I mean, he, he comes across really well, I think, but very intense, you know, they're, when they're in that team meeting and he's basically like, look, this isn't good enough. This has been happening like again and again and again this season. So that's quite an interesting insight into him and how, how he operates and, and, the, and the standards he sets. I actually thought, um, I, I, sorry, this is going to seem like I'm like digging Kane out, which obviously I'm really not. But he, he seemed quite uncomfortable in that moment to me. This is after the Man United game you're talking about, right? Mm. Where he kind of puts his hand up in the in the in the meeting, and you know, Mourinho kind of almost encourages him to sort of dig the other players out in a way. Um, but he's kind of like staring into space and sort of stumbling over his words. And it's like I, I know, and it's interesting having talked about the captaincy a bit earlier on. It it's kind of feels or maybe he's kind of still feeling his way into being like one of the voices in the dressing room. But it just kind of didn't. It didn't strike me in that moment, and it may, and again, maybe it's because Mourinho's there, and you know he'd only been there two or three weeks at that point, and he's such a big figure with such a huge reputation that maybe he felt less comfortable. And again, being filmed as well, maybe he felt less comfortable than he would have done with Pochettino and no cameras. But it just, it did seem like he was incredibly uncomfortable saying that. And I, I, you know, maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but just, just from his kind of body language and the way he spoke, it, I, I just found that interesting. And he is really, really critical. He says something like, you're shifting the blame to other people. Everyone's scared, thinking something somebody else will do it for me. It's unacceptable. But it is interesting seeing that that kind of window into Kane's leadership. Because one thing that I think the documentary missed out, but I might be wrong, is they don't think they mentioned that Luis broke his arm at Brighton. No, they don't, so because they skipped the game, like, don't they? There's like this assumption. So like Kane is effectively captain for the course of, well, episodes two and three, without them saying that like he's not really the captain. He's only captain because Luis is injured. So you see Kane do these stirring team talks before every game, which are pretty basic, really, in the, in terms of their content. Um and it would just, I'm just, I am curious to wonder what the difference is between that and the kind of whatever Lloris would say when, when Lloris has got the armband. Hearing Kane swear, I, I found quite strange. I just can't think that I'd ever heard that before or even considered that it might be a bit. <laughs> but it's kind of like, I don't know, hearing him swear is kind of like hearing, like a vicar, you know, swear at some hoodies <laughs> of like sort of, you know, vandalized the village green or whatever. It just, it kind of just felt like totally out of character. Uh, and it just it sort of I don't know it was slightly uncomfortable I didn't think it was uncomfortable I just thought it was a bit like I don't know I don't know really know if I was expecting I know, I mean, anything uncomfortable more uncomfortable for different. me I mean I had never heard oh, okay, that before right. <laughs> yeah well you don't generally hear footballers swear do you because whenever they do they like, have to Jeff Shreves has to apologise uh, for inappropriate language um, what else have I got written down on my notes for stuff that I thought was interesting oh yeah I quite liked um, this kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier about Daniel Levy, James, and that, that is these little interactions between Mourinho and Levy. The two that stand out to me is one where Mourinho is explaining why he's going to play Dyer after hooking him against Olympiakos. 
And the yeah. other is when they're talking about Ericsson's contract situation and how uh, Levy doesn't know what the agent's thinking and he's only got, he's coming into his last six months and they don't know what they're going to do. And in both those situations, I thought the two things that struck me are one, Levy looks like he's hanging off Mourinho's every word. Mm, yeah. Like he looks, he looks absolutely like, he looks really kind of, not childlike, but kind of transfixed by Mourinho. And he's desperate to know what Mourinho thinks about things. And the other is, you know, we all know what a sort of private private guy Levy is. He famously like hardly ever does interviews and people don't really know much about him. And he doesn't have much of a public profile given how how in, how influential and uh, he is. And I was kind of surprised that he was willing to commit all this stuff to camera. Yeah, that I, is And I true. couldn't work out if he was putting it on or if like that is genuinely what his relation, his interactions with Jose are like. Well, yeah, I thought that one with the, you know, you're saying kind of in awe of him when he's asking him to like, he's like, can you have one more go at trying to convince him, Jose, in, in relation to Ericsson and his new contract? And, it, you know, it feels as if he views Mourinho as, as having such an all-powerful influence that he'll be able to do that. I was surprised by that because that was kind of, I think that was sort of December, wasn't it? And I, I, yeah. you know, in my mind, it, it kind of felt like the Ericsson thing had kind of been and been gone by then and that... Uh, my, my assumption was basically, but that by that point, that you know, the club had resigned as to him leaving, and it was going to be a case of whether or not they could get a bit of cash for him in January, or whether he'd leave for nothing in the summer. But I, I was quite surprised to see that they were still sort of, you know, tr- trying to sort of wave contracts under his nose in December. Um, right, right, just to go back to what you were saying about those meetings, Jack. That the one that the one that I really enjoyed actually was the one after the Burnley game, where. <laughs> It seems like maybe uh, by, by that stage, Mourinho has really sort of got fed up of, of like speaking to Levy all the time because Levy was like really enthusiastically talking about the Son goal, um, which regular listeners to the podcast will know we all thought was rubbish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like Mourinho is like giving these sort of monosyllabic answers to like all of these questions from from Levy about like oh, it was really good for us to to win and play well, wasn't it? Oh, it was really good to keep a clean sheet and. Oh, Sonny's goal was really amazing, wasn't it? He? he picked the ball up in his own half, and Mourinho's just like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My impression of that scene is like, like you did, just then, Jack. Yeah, yeah. My my impression with Mourinho, with Mourinho in that scene is that because he's someone who like thinks about football so much on such a high level, he probably like can't really be asked to have what he thinks is like quite a basic conversation about football. Uh, I've got to say way- that's kind of like it, it, if as a football journalist you get into like the back of a cab and you're going to like yeah. a training ground or somewhere, and then like the cabbie will obviously say, "Oh, why are you going to such and such training ground? Yeah. Who are you going to go and see?" It's the same conversation that we would have with. So we're all wankers, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, completely. Or, or like when you, um, or like when you're at a wedding and you're sat yes, next to like absolutely. someone's, like someone's boyfriend, and you're like, oh wow, yeah, mate, I'm a massive gooner, and they just like talk to you about football <laughs> yeah, for yeah, yeah, like yeah. twenty minutes. It's like, oh my god, this is t- sorry, but I don't think anyone who I've ever sat next to at a wedding listens to this podcast. If you have, I don't mean you personally. I mean the other ones. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, that's kind of the vibe I got from, from that particular conversation. But with Levy as well, I mean, and again, I may be being cynical about it, but isn't he? I just don't feel like anything that's been done or, or I feel like most things that have been done are being done with uh, the fact that cameras are in mind obviously some things are very instinctive but they know they're being filmed and there's a degree to which you know they want to come across well they want to present Tottenham well so I feel like Levy's the kind of person who you know he, he will he'll know how he's coming across and it will be it will all be quite deliberate and you know because it's humanizing as well which I think can only be a good thing for him you know but he's seen by so many people as you know just being this ruthless 
businessman, whereas this does paint him in a more sympathetic light, I think. Um, and, and I think that's positive for him and the club. What's our overall... So three episodes in, who do you think, who do you think, comes, out, who do you think comes out of it the best? Is there anyone apart from Mourinho who you or who you've been impressed or surprised by? I think Delhi comes across well. I think he, uh, you know, he, he gets across that kind of likable, cheeky glint in his eye, and obviously, you know, quite a big character in the dressing room. That that meeting with Mourinho, I thought, was really interesting because actually, I think the way Mourinho spoke to to Delhi Ali in that meeting, I think, is kind of the way a lot of fans would like to speak to him to kind of say, I mean, it, it, you know, he kind of said, oh, I, "I'm not going to be your dad," but it was kind of like that sort of parental vibe to it like you know when he said like I'm 56 now whatever and yesterday I was 20 kind of suggesting that you know you've got to make the most of what you've got while you're a player you know because it will be gone before you know it uh and that 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 does kind of I think it's probably strike a note with a few with a few Spurs fans who will kind of look at Deli Alley and think this guy's massively talented but he's just not consistently showing what he can do and he they talk quite a lot about his form in the previous season but I to my mind, and and I don't know how you two feel about this, but I don't remember Deli Ali being like sort of demonstrably worse in eighteen nineteen than he had been in any, in any other season. He might not have been as good, but I don't really remember him being bad. So it's, I found it quite interesting that he felt that he had a bad season. That's not really how I remember it. He did drop off a bit. I mean, a lot of it, we looked at it in that big read we did on Delhi uh, back in April, I think it was. Um, he did drop off quite a bit. A lot of that, though, was down to injuries. Uh, he he kept getting niggles and he and he was playing deeper. Uh, but he did, and he did acknowledge it. I mean, he changed his diet and things like that. He did feel like things, things weren't going quite right. I, I think some of the criticism is harsh, but yeah, it, it was a bit of a drop off from where he'd been. I, I think as well because he had a bit of that post-World Cup lull that a lot of the Tottenham players had. I think Aurier is probably the one who I think was most surprised me. He doesn't really get interview in in English in his bus on the way to the school to do that meeting about talking about his background. Um, and I think he's quite he kind of engages as well with with Mourinho in Sacramento. And I think he also looks a bit hurt when Mourinho says, "I'm worried about you. You're a shit shit marker. You're going to give away a stupid penalty or whatever it was." Which I think is just Mourinho's like you know method for for trying to get him to improve, but. He uh, Aurier does doesn't look delighted by it, so I quite I I, I liked him. Um, I thought I thought the worst bits I don't, were probably Delhi's banter about tooth about brushing teeth. That was so weird. I just didn't I yeah. didn't understand that at all. So that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. By the time you hear this, Tottenham will have been drawn in their Europa League second qualifying round draw against one of Aris Thessaloniki of Greece, KF Lassie of Albania, and Lokomotiv Plovdiv of Bulgaria. Uh, and then I believe on Tuesday they've got their draw for the third qualifying round. Uh, so we will discuss all of that as well as the fourth, fifth, and sixth episodes of the Amazon documentary on our podcast next week. Music 